Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Amen. He is worthy, and we get to reflect on that very truth this morning in Hebrews 5. Uh, if you will be turning to Hebrews 5, and while you're doing that, I uh, will be dismissing our children to our children's ministry, so you can make your way to the back where our children's leaders are if you want to be a part of our children's class uh, this morning. We invite you to go uh, there uh, with them. Uh, again, we will be in Hebrews chapter 5, uh, verses 5 through 10, as we continue to make our way through this book. It's good to be back here this morning. I'm so thankful for a plurality of pastors in this church and other elders and pastors who can preach and teach the truth of God's word as Nathaniel so faithfully did last week with the first four verses of Hebrews 5. But this week we're going to be in verses 5 through 10. And so let me read our passage for us this morning and then we'll take a moment to pray together and to ask for the Lord's help. So Hebrews chapter 5 beginning in verse 5. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege it is to be able to gather here again this morning under the truth of your word. We acknowledge and give you thanks that it is a gift of grace from you that we are able to do this. Father, we stand here with our only hope being the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I'm so thankful that because of what he has done for us in our place, that you have sent his spirit to dwell within all who trust in him, to awaken our hearts and to open our eyes to see the glories of Christ, to, to change us through the truth of your word. And so, <clears throat> Father, we pray that that's what you would do this morning, that your spirit would be at work in us through the truth of your word, awakening us more and more to the glories of Christ as he is revealed in these verses. Father, what a privilege it is to be able to simply meditate over the character, the nature, the role of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray as we do that this morning that you would strengthen our faith, that you would tighten our grip on our Savior this morning, that we would hold fast to our confidence that we have in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you would guide my words, that you would allow me to speak only what is true of you, that, that, that I would lead no one astray, but instead you would lead us into all truth from the truth of your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, as I'm sure you are well aware, there are many difficult passages in the Bible, right? There's, there's lots of them. Some are difficult because of the particular issue it deals with. It's a sensitive topic in a particular culture. Others are difficult because they're hard to understand or they use strange language, perhaps. You know, for example, just as one example, First Peter 3.19, Peter talks about Jesus going in the Spirit to preach to the spirits that are in prison because they didn't obey in the days of Noah when he was building the ark. Look, nobody is 100% sure what Peter's talking about in that passage, right? There's, we have guesses. We have strong assumptions about what he's saying. Like, I'm not saying we can't pursue truth from that verse, but that's, that's a confusing verse, right? That's a difficult passage. And then Peter writes that, and then Peter has the, the audacity in 2 Peter 3.16 to say that there are some hard things that Paul wrote about, right? Like Peter, he didn't say anything that weird, but, and he says that about Paul, right? So, so even Peter admits there's things that Paul wrote uh, that, that, that are hard to understand, that are hard to get at. P- Peter wrote things that were hard to understand, but, but here's, here's what's interesting. Even though there are lots of difficult passages, This may be one of the only places, one of the only passages where the author himself tells us that what he is writing about is hard to explain. So the very verse, after verse 10, the author of Hebrews is talking about what we just read. And in verse 11, he says about this, so about the very thing that we're going to be talking about this morning from verses 5 through 10, the author of Hebrews says, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Now, I don't know about you, but as a pastor, that's not a very encouraging thing to read when you're the guy who has to try to explain it, right? When God's inspired word says, this is hard to explain, and yet that's exactly the task that we are pursuing this morning. We're going to try and understand what it is that the author of Hebrews is saying to us. Now, now to be fair, the author of Hebrews does make clear in verse 11 that one of the reasons, if not the main reason, it's hard to explain is because his original audience had become dull of hearing. Now, that, that pushes us into next week's sermon, so I don't want to jump too far ahead, but that was one of the issues that the Hebrews were facing. They had not trained themselves in the word of God and in pursuing his truth. And so they had become dull of hearing. And because of that, it was hard to explain what what he had to say about Jesus being our high priest. But even so, even so, even having given that explanation, that's because they were dull of hearing, yet, yet the vast majority of the book of Hebrews is now going to be about this very concept that Jesus is our high priest. From here, you know, from, from chapter 5 all the way basically through chapter 10, it's going to be all about Jesus being our high priest, explaining exactly what that is, what it means for us, and, and what role Christ fulfilled by being our great high priest. So, so we're going to be looking at this for many weeks to come. There's a little bit of a side that we'll see next week in 5.11 to about 6.12 where the author of Hebrews does have to deal with this dull hearing that's happening among the Hebrews that he's writing to, but 
But outside of that, it is a long, extended meditation on the role of Jesus Christ as our great high priest. And having said that, even though it's hard to explain, even though it takes multiple chapters for the author to make his argument, these are theological concepts and biblical truths that are worth pursuing. They're worth us taking the weeks upon weeks that we're going to take to dig into them. Because look, there are, there are theological concepts that, that simply don't fit on bumper stickers, right? That don't work as cliches, that take time to, to wade through and to wrestle with and to struggle with. It's, it's like digging for a precious jewel, right, in, in, in dirt. Like there's a, there's a national park, right, where you can go and look for diamonds. They're, they're out there, and you can look all over the place for them. Dig around. They're, they're laying out there, and you have to do a lot of hard work. Dig it up. But if you find it, right, if you find it and dig it up and clean it off, you have this precious jewel in your hands that is beautiful to gaze at, and that's the work we're going to be doing. We're going to be digging into seeing the glories of Jesus Christ in these coming chapters about his role as our great high priest. And the whole goal of that is to make us better prepared as we meditate on Christ's role as our high priest, that we will be better prepared to stand firm in the midst of temptation and adversity. Just as Nathaniel pointed us back to last week, he, he reminded us that what we had seen at the end of chapter 4, that, that we need to, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. He reminded us in verse 14, looking back, he, he said that the reason we need to understand the role of the high priest is because Jesus is our high priest, and we're supposed to hold fast to this confession. And so these truths will give us something to cling to. As I mentioned earlier, it will tighten our grip on this confession of truth that the author of Hebrews is laying out before us. Now, last week in verses 1 through 4, Nathaniel did a great job of setting up for us the context of the role of the great high priest. What, what was the high priest? What what was his role in, his, in Israel's history? And what becomes clear is that they were assigned to act on behalf of men in relation to God. You see that there in chapter 5, verse 1. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. In other words, because of our sin, if we're going to relate to God, we have to have an intermediary. We have to have a high priest. And Nathaniel reminded us that, that even the human high priests that existed in Israel's history were a good gift from God to his people that gave them a way that they could relate to God, that they could offer sacrifices, that they could pursue forgiveness. <clears throat> but ultimately what this reminds us of is that if we're going to relate to God, if we're going to have our relationship restored to him, then we must have a high priest that God himself appoints for us. We can't just up and decide that I'm going to be a high priest for you this week. You can't decide you're going to be your own high priest. None of us are worthy. None of us can do it. It must be appointed by God himself, and only God himself can provide the very means that we need to receive his grace and mercy. Right? What a precious gift that is from God to us. 
But as we're going to see in the coming chapters and even see in the passage this morning, we need a priest who's greater than Aaron. We need a greater high priest who can stand in our place. And so it continues the theme of Hebrews that Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. And now we're going to see this morning that Jesus is greater than Aaron. He's greater than any high priest that has come before him. That is the glorious theme of Hebrews, that Jesus is greater. We're we're going to see it once again in this passage this morning and in the coming chapters all the way through chapter 10. And what we're going to see is that Jesus was both appointed to the role of high priest and he is worthy to be our great high priest. And both of those aspects are extremely important. He is both appointed and worthy. Appointed and worthy. And we needed him to be both so that he could, as verse 9 points out to us, so so that he could become for us the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He must be both appointed and he must be worthy. And so what I want us to do this morning is simply look at four reasons why Jesus is worthy to be the source of our eternal salvation. That's what holds this passage together. It is a demonstration that Christ is the appointed high priest who is worthy to be the source of our eternal salvation. So here are, the, here are the four reasons that the author gives why Jesus is worthy to be our source of eternal salvation. Number one, he is worthy because he was appointed by the Father. Number two, he is worthy because of his reverence. Three, he's worthy because of his obedience. And number four, he's worthy because he was made perfect. So let's look at reason number one for why Jesus is worthy to be the source of our eternal salvation. He is worthy because he was appointed by the Father. Look there with me again at verses five, or sorry, at verse five. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now remember, as Nathaniel showed us last week in chapter 5, verse 1, and and as I've already mentioned, for someone to be a high priest, they had to be appointed by God himself. And verse 4 of chapter 5 makes clear that no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. So to be a great high priest, you had to be appointed by God to that role. In other words, Jesus didn't just show up in Jerusalem and decide on his own volition that he's going to declare himself to be the next great high priest. It's not what happened. He relied on the proclamation and on the testimony of his father every step of the way. We see this, for example, in Jesus' words in John chapter 8, verse 54. Where Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. It seems as if perhaps there were those among the Hebrew people trying to claim 
that Jesus couldn't be who he said he was. He, he couldn't be the great high priest because only God can appoint the great high priest. He can't just decide he's the great high priest. The, the people can't just decide that he's the great high priest. He must be appointed by God. And so perhaps there were doubts growing in their minds. And the answer to that comes from the author of Hebrews. And he says to us, look, Jesus didn't declare himself to be the great high priest. God the Father deemed it so. The sovereign God of the universe declared him, appointed him to be the great high priest. To which the natural question, of course, is how do we know that? Because nowhere in the Gospels does God call Jesus the great high priest. Well, this is why it's important that we know all of our Bible and not just the New Testament. Because the Old Testament also points us to the long-awaited Messiah, to the promised seed, namely Jesus Christ. And what it says about Jesus carries just as much weight and authority as what the New Testament says about Jesus. And so the author says to us, look in, in Psalm 2, God says about Jesus, and he's, that's what he's quoting here. He's quoting Psalm 2 in verse 5. He said about him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The, the author of Hebrews is repeating what he's already told us in chapter 1, that, that God declared Jesus to be his son, his glorious divine son. But also that very same God, that very same God the Father who declared Jesus to be his son also also says in another place, namely in Psalm 110, that Jesus is a priest forever. He's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this concept of Jesus being a priest in the line of Melchizedek is repeated again in verse 10. It, you see it there being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We'll, we'll mention a little bit more about that toward the end. But, but future sermons, right, into chapter 6, 7 and following, the author of Hebrews really does a deep dive on, on what this means that Jesus was in the line of Melchizedek. But what I want us to see right now is that this takes us deep into the theology of the Trinity. Right? We have the Father appointing and declaring that Jesus is the great high priest, to which someone may say, well, Jesus is God, isn't he? So isn't God just declaring himself to be a great high priest? And I thought you couldn't declare yourself to be a great high priest. So what in the world is going on here? Exactly how does this work? And that's why the theology of the Trinity is so important. God in three persons. One God, three distinct persons. You see, you see, we already know from Hebrews chapter 1 that the author declares Jesus to be the divine, eternal Son of God. That there was never a time when Jesus was not. You can see that there at the beginning of chapter 1. In Hebrews 1, verse 2, he says about Jesus that it was through him that the world was created. And verse 3, he says that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. In verse 6, the angels are called to worship, to worship the Son. Right? God does not command angels to worship idols or things that are not God and he calls on the angels to worship Jesus because Jesus is God and in verse 8 he directly calls Jesus 
God. So the author of Hebrews has already established and declared and made clear that Jesus is divine. He is God. He has no beginning and he will have no end. He is the eternal, glorious, second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. But Jesus, though fully God, cannot appoint himself to be high priest. Therefore, a distinct person of the Trinity must do so, namely, the Father. The Father who also is fully God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons of one substance. They are all fully divine. And this furthermore shows us that one of the heresies, one of the errors of the Trinity that some people claim is that there's one God and he just manifests himself in different forms at different times. Sometimes he shows up as father, sometimes he shows up as son, and other times he shows up as spirit. But of course, that doesn't make any sense in this unless we think there's one of those kind of weird things where, where God stands here and says, I'm going to make you the high priest. And then he jumps over here and says, okay, now I'm the high priest. And then he, right, he, he can't show up at different times in different ways. So they are eternally three distinct persons who all exist at the same time. And by virtue of that reality, the father is able to declare the son to be the great high priest. You see, a doctrine like the Trinity matters. It matters. It allows this kind of reality to take place that therefore Jesus can be declared and appointed to be our great high priest. And therefore, therefore Jesus is worthy because he has been appointed to that role by God the Father himself. He has been deemed a great high priest who is greater than Aaron, who stands in our place, who acts on behalf of us in relation to God. And so Jesus is worthy because he was appointed by the Father. But second, Jesus is worthy because of his reverence. Look there with me in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So once again, we're reminded here at the beginning of verse 7 that, that Jesus took on flesh, right? In the days of his flesh, he, he became a man and dwelt among us so that he could, like the other high priest, sympathize with us. So he could be gentle toward us because he's been tempted, the end of verse 4 told us, in every way as we are yet without sin. And so he came in the flesh, tempted as we are, so that he could be a compassionate high priest toward us. And while he was in the flesh, verse 7 says to us that he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. In other words, th these weren't, this wasn't a prayer that was just a run-of-the-mill, everyday kind of prayer, right? This was a passionate plea to the Father. Our Savior, the divine Son of God, offering up loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him 
from death. Now, there's some debate about what exactly verse 7 is referencing because some want to argue and say, well, it says in the days, plural, of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, and so it must mean the pattern of his life. He was, you know, throughout his time on earth offering up these kinds of prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. While others would say, well, 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 that's certainly true. The pattern of Jesus' life, no question about it, you see it in the Gospels, was to continually set aside time to walk away and spend time in deep prayer with the Father. No question about it, but they say, but this seems to be referencing a specific prayer, namely Jesus' time in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's struggling about the impending wrath of God that he's going to have to bear, about his impending death that's going to happen the, the very next day. And in the midst of that prayer, he is clearly offering up loud cries and tears. So which is it? Well, I lean pretty hard toward believing this is a direct reference to Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. But even if I'm wrong... I think we're safe because the Garden of Gethsemane is a stark, clear example of this kind of prayer that Jesus were to pray throughout his life. But here we are, I think, what's being referenced is Jesus' prayer. <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, so after Jesus initiates the Lord's table, which we're going to be observing this morning, after he uh, uh, breaks the bread and uh, symbolizing his broken body and distributes the, the wine to his disciples, saying that it symbolizes his blood that is going to be spilled. He then, after that Lord's Supper, he, he moves toward the Garden of Gethsemane where he wants to spend time in prayer because he knows what is coming the very next day. He's made clear numerous times throughout the Gospels that he has set his face toward Jerusalem, that he knows what's coming to him, that he knows death is waiting for him. This was no surprise to Jesus. He knows exactly what is going to happen. But what I want to point out here is that, that even as Jesus struggled in the garden, right, and he cried out with, with tears and he made loud cries and it says that he was even sweating blood that that it was such an excruciating agonizing moment of prayer that it was so intense that the capillaries that his blood vessels began to rupture and blood became mixed with his sweat and poured out from him and what i want to be clear about is i don't think Jesus was mainly in agony over the physical suffering that death would bring as excruciating and terrible as he knew that was going to be. No, what Jesus knew was coming his way was bearing the wrath of God that you and I fully deserve to have poured out on us. But he willingly knew that he was going to experience the outpouring of of God's wrath as he took your sin on himself. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So he is crying out in agony over the wrath he knows that is to come, that he's going to have to drink the cup of God's wrath. And so he prays, Luke 22, 43 and 44, Father, if you are willing, 
remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. But what I want you to see there in Luke 22 is what Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. That is reverence. That is putting above all things the will of God the Father. Whatever it takes, whatever suffering I must endure, whatever agony I must bear, whatever, whatever wrath I must take on, if it is your will, Father, I'm following you to the end. And so the author of Hebrews says to us that because of that reverence, because of his resolve to be about the Father's will, he was heard as he cried out to the one who is able to save him from death. Now, again, difficult passage, right? What does it mean when it says he cried out to him who was able to save him from death? Because almost from day one of the promise of the coming seed, it has been known that this coming Savior, the Messiah, was going to have to die, right? Genesis 3, he's going to bruise your heel. You're going to crush his head. That hints at it. Isaiah 53 makes it crystal clear he was going to be pierced for our transgressions. Like Jesus knew, right, from day one that he was going to have to die to stand in our place as our great high priest. So what exactly is going on here when it says he cried out to him who was able to save him from death? Well, again, there's, a, there's debate about what, what the author of Hebrews is saying here, but it seems to me that what the author is saying is that he, he is saying Jesus cried out to him who was able to save him out of death. So, so the word that in my translation the English Standard Version that is translated from death and literally, typically, is translated out of death. And I think what the author of Hebrews is getting at is that Jesus was praying that God would keep him and rescue him from the grave. That he would be delivered out of death. And we know that he was heard because what happens? He was raised from the grave on the third day. And in his resurrection, in the power of his resurrection, when he was raised from the tomb, God declared to the world that the sacrifice had been accepted, that Jesus had in fact fulfilled his role as our great high priest, that the sacrifice, that, that his death in our place was accepted by the Father, that he was heard because of his reverence. Now, by the way, I know that some translations render the word reverence as fear. And so some of you may be looking at different translation and confused with what we're talking about. And that's, the word fear is a good word, right? That's what the word reverence means. It means a healthy fear of God, right? A fear of God that's willing to obey him to the very end, right? Obey him at all costs. And so, so Jesus had this healthy fear of the Father in the sense of a desire to worship him and to obey him. And the ESV translates it reverence. But, but this is the point. Point, right? this, is, this is why in the middle of a passage about Jesus being our high priest, the author of Hebrews takes time to tell us about this prayer. 
right? It seems disconnected from the point the author's trying to make unless you understand that he's using this to prove to us that Jesus was worthy of his role of high priest because he was full of reverence for the Father. He was worthy, not just because he was appointed, but also because of his actions and what he did. That he was willing to pursue the will of the Father no matter what the cost. You see, this is intended to increase our confidence in our Savior, that he wasn't simply appointed to the role of high priest, he was also worthy of the role by the very actions of his life. That he was full of reverence for the Father. But listen, here's, here's, the, here's another piece of the glorious good news for all of us this morning. I doubt any of us in this room have pursued the Father's will, have agonized over pursuing obedience to God's will, no matter what the cost, at the extent of shedding sweat of blood on your face. And yet it is that reverence that in the final days of judgment that will stand in your place. It is the righteous life of Christ that will be imputed to you. You will be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. As Paul points out to us in Philippians 3, 9, that he will be found in him, not having a, righteous, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. We will be given the righteous life of Jesus Christ. It will belong to us. And it is this kind of righteousness that God will look at you and say, it's yours. I'm judging you by the righteous reverence of Jesus Christ. And here's the other piece of good news, friends. When our loved ones in Christ face death and we plead with God to save their lives, to rescue them, we can also plead with him the same way Jesus did with his father that they would be rescued out of death. Because here's the glorious good news. The resurrection doesn't end with Jesus. It begins with him. And one day we will join him in his resurrection. So all of our brothers and sisters in Christ who die will one day, by the power of God, be rescued out of death. Because Jesus was rescued out of death. He is our glorious and worthy high priest. He's, he's worthy because he was appointed by the Father. He's worthy because of the reverence that he displayed with his life. And number three, he is worthy because of his obedience. Look there with me at verse eight. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. You see, the author of Hebrews is going to great lengths here. To, he's saying to us, I, I want to show you that it wasn't just because he was appointed that he's worthy to high, be high priest. Yes, it's because of that, but it's not only because of that. It's not just because of his position as the glorious son of God that he's worthy to high priest, though that's certainly true. But it's also because he, was, he lived a life of reverence and because he also was obedient, even when it meant he had to suffer to be so. He was an obedient, worthy high priest. Now it's, again, 
Strange language, right? How does the divine, eternal Son of God, very God of very God himself, learn obedience? What does that mean? That he learned obedience through his suffering. Is the author somehow implying that Jesus was not obedient, but then through the crucible of suffering, he learned what it meant to be obedient and, and it somehow cleansed him of his disobedience as he pursued obedience? Is that what the author is saying? Well, we know that's not what he's saying because earlier in Hebrews, the author made clear in chapter 4, verse 15, that Jesus was without sin. He's sinless. And so it's not that he was disobedient and then became obedient. So what exactly does this verse mean when it says he learned obedience through what, he, through what he suffered? Well, I think what it's talking about is experiential obedience. What it means is in his life, Jesus had the opportunity to experience and display that he was willing to be obedient even if he had to suffer in excruciating ways. You see, it, it reminds me of what Satan says about Job when he comes before the throne. And if you're not familiar with that story, let, let me remind you what it says. Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Satan's allowed to be in this, some kind of meeting of the supernatural. And Satan's there. And God says, well, have you... You know, where have you been, Satan? He's like, I've been roaming the earth, which you've allowed me to do for this period of time. And, and then God says to him, and by the way, this is an important aspect of Job. Often we think it was Satan's idea. God brings Job up. Job says, have you considered, uh, God says, have you, con God says, have you considered my servant Job? And listen to what Satan says about Job. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. In other words, Satan is saying to God, the only reason Job is willing to pursue obedience to you and to pursue a life of righteousness is because you don't ever let anything bad happen to Job. But the moment, God, you let something bad happen to Job, he's going to curse you to your face and walk away from you. And you see what the author of Hebrews is saying to us about Jesus is that he didn't just trust the Father because he had an easy life. He pursued obedience even if it meant he had to lay down his life. He pursued obedience even if it meant he had to bear up under the wrath of God and drink the cup of God's wrath to the very bottom. That's the obedience Jesus was willing to have. That's the obedience of our great high priest. And therefore, Jesus is worthy, right? He's a greater high priest. He's worthy to be our eternal great high priest, to be the source of our eternal salvation because he obeyed to the very end at all costs. He refused to disobey the Father. Therefore, he is worthy. He's worthy because he was appointed. He's worthy because he lived a life of reverence. He's, he's worthy 
because he was fully obedient even through immense and unspeakable suffering and pain. And finally, the worth of his name was most clearly seen in verses 9 and 10, which brings us to our fourth and final reason for why Jesus is worthy. He is worthy because he was made perfect. Look there, verses 9 and 10. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Being made perfect. Another strange phrase. How does Jesus, how is he made perfect? Because I want to be really clear this morning. Jesus has been perfect forever. There has never been a day when Jesus has not been perfect so you let your mind wander, right? If you ever sit around and do this and try to think about eternity past, there never being a beginning, and Jesus has always been there, and for as long as you can even attempt to wrap your mind around it, he has been perfect. And yet, the author of Hebrews says, he was made perfect. What, what does that mean? Well, the word perfect can, can mean to be brought to completion. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the role he was given, the role he was appointed by the Father. He achieved it by the actions of his life. He lived a life of reverence, of always pursuing the will of his Father, he lived a life of full and total and complete obedience to God the Father. And because he did that, he is our perfect sacrifice. He accomplished the perfection of his task. And because he was made perfect, it says that he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Do you hear those glorious two words? The source of eternal salvation. You're not just saved for now. You're not just saved for next month or for next year. You're not just saved for a hundred years from now or a thousand years from now or a trillion years from now. You're saved forever. Jesus is never going to change his mind about you two trillion years from now. He's not going to say, you know what? I don't want you here after all. No, he's the source because of the perfection of his life. Because he stood in our place as our great high priest. He is the source for all who obey him. He is the source of our eternal salvation. But it is for only some people, not all people. This is not a statement of universal salvation, right? It says that he is the source of eternal salvation for those who obey him. And that language should make you really uneasy. Because it sounds like you have to somehow earn eternal salvation, right? If you obey him, you get eternal salvation. Of course, we know that not to be true because... We proclaim week in and week out that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. So then why does this say 
He is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Well, two, two bits of explanation. Romans chapter 1 verse 5 makes clear that faith itself is an act of obedience, the obedience of faith. So one way we obey Jesus is by trusting him. Right? So, so that's one way we obey him. So, so that's explanation number one for what the author is talking about. But I think even more than that is implied here. The, the, the Hebrews to whom the author is writing were, were struggling with faithfulness in their daily lives. They were being tempted to, to, to walk away, right? To, to pursue unfaithfulness and disobedience. And the author of Hebrews is reminding them, look, true faith is always joined by obedience. Not perfection, but a pursuit of obedience. Faith in Christ is transformative. And we shouldn't cheapen it by pretending that someone can trust in Christ, but yet have no desire to obey him, even at great cost, like Jesus was willing to obey the Father, right? If we, if we teach that or believe that, that somehow faith doesn't really change us, that trusting in Christ, you don't look any different from a month after you trusted in Christ than the year before you trusted in Christ, then we are cheapening what it means to trust in Christ. No, no, we proclaim the biblical truth that when we have faith in Christ, it changes us. It makes us a people who want to obey Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that we perfectly do it, but it means we pursue it with everything that we have. And it means that the trajectory of our life is one of sanctification, one of growing more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We may have struggles and, and dips for days or weeks or even months, but the overall pattern is one of growth and pursuit of likeness to Jesus Christ. And I think that's what's being said here when it says salvation to all who obey him. That's why Jesus continually says to us that we will be known by our what? Fruit. Look, it's the reality, to behi it's the reality behind one of the most sobering verses in all the scriptures. Matthew seven twenty one. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That, that's a sobering statement. So yes, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But faith is always joined by good works in obedience, the good works that Ephesians tells us God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That obedience is the proof of the faith that we claim we have. So, yes, Jesus was made perfect, and because of that, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And we should not hesitate to use biblical language, even if it makes us uncomfortable. It is for those who obey him. And therefore, because of his appointment to the role of high priest, because of his reverence and his obedience and his perfections, he is the source of eternal salvation because he has been designated as our great high priest. Though it's not of the line of Aaron, it's not of the line of the Levites, it is of the line 
of this barely mentioned in the Bible person, Melchizedek. And he's going to spend lots of chapters to come explaining what it means that Jesus was after the order of Melchizedek. And if you want to read a little bit, Genesis chapter 14, all of a sudden, in just this one brief section of Genesis, Melchizedek pops up and then he goes away. And then he's mentioned in Psalm 110. And then here we are again. And yet there's going to be great significance on Jesus being of that line of priests. So stay tuned, right? Come back and hear more. But that narrative, that reality of this Old Testament figure, this obscure individual becomes an important foundational part of our very salvation, right? Us understanding who he was and how Jesus steps into that role. So brothers and sisters, we can hold fast to our confession. We can hold fast to our great high priest, Jesus Christ, because he is our worthy and all-sufficient great high priest. He was appointed to the role by the Father. He was worthy of the role because of his reverence. He was worthy because of his obedience. And he was worthy because he was made perfect. And it is through him that we have eternal salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the work of Christ in our place, that he has saved us to the uttermost, that he is worthy that he is worthy of all of our praise as we sang earlier just before the sermon. He is worthy of all of our praise. He's worthy of every song that we could ever sing. And he is worthy because of his character, because of his nature, simply because of who he is. But he is also worthy because of the role that the Father gave him as our great high priest. He is also worthy because of the, the integrity of his life, that he was full of reverence and obedience obedience to you every step of the way. Jesus, we thank you that you did not fail, that not once did you give into temptation. You were sinless and without stain. And because of that, you are our perfect high priest and our glorious, all-sufficient sacrifice. And so, Father, I pray that you would build our lives on these truths and that you would keep our hearts and minds fixed on the finished work of Christ in our place. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.